Okay, we are continuing our study this morning, and this will be our final lesson in this series that we've been doing for the last two months on America and God. So as we bring this to a close this morning, in many ways it seems appropriate that we do this on the Sunday before we observe Thanksgiving Day. Because we give thanks for this great nation. A nation that at least for now remains a free nation. And our prayer is that it will always be a free nation. A nation always where God is revered. History tells us that a group of people made their way from England to the shores of this land in 1620. They were a group of Christians who called themselves pilgrims who crossed the Atlantic. They had received a permission to settle in the northern part of the region known as Virginia. And their intent was to establish a colony there and to erect a church. They hoped for a church that would be free and independent of the Church of England. But late fall winds battered their boat and pushed them northward. And when they finally sighted land, it was a place that we now call Cape Cod in Massachusetts. It was November 1620, and they did not want to land there because it was a cold and forbidding wilderness. So they debated for a while. And they said, should we try to get to Virginia or just go ahead and settle there? And finally they decided their boat would probably not make it to Virginia, so they came ashore at a place that we now know as Plymouth Rock. But before they came ashore, they wrote what is known today as the Mayflower Compact. And it begins with these words. In the name of God, we whose names are underwritten, having undertaken for the glory of God the advancement of the Christian faith, a voyage to plant a first colony in the northern part of Virginia, do solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and of one another covenant and combine ourselves together. Now, do we realize what they're saying there? <clears throat> We've come here in the name of God. We've come here to glorify God. We've come here to advance the Christian faith. They were saying we are unashamedly believers in God. We're searching for a place where we can worship God the way that we feel the Bible teaches us to worship Him. Someone has said, and it's quite wise, the difference between North America and South America is the Spaniards went to South America in search of gold. The pilgrims came to North America in search of God. And there is enough truth in that statement. <clears throat> Pardon me to explain some of the differences in the history and the development of the two continents of North America and South America. The earliest foundations of this free land that we live in were spiritual 
foundations. Because this was a nation built upon faith in and a commitment to God. As we begin this last lesson on this theme of America and God, I want us to look at two Old Testament stories. The first is the story of Gideon. It takes place when, at a time when the enemies of God's people held them in subjection. And God raised up Gideon to rally an army and to free Israel. And the first call for volunteers was answered by 32,000 men. They were ready to go forth. They were ready to do battle. And in Judges chapter 7 and verse 2, we read, Jehovah God said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. So at God's instructions, Gideon gave all those who were fearful the opportunity to return home. 22,000 men returned. Of the 10,000 that remained, Jehovah said to Gideon, The people are yet too many. It's quite clear. God's purpose was to deliver Israel in such a way that the people of Israel would know that their deliverance came through the power of God rather than through the strength of their own hands. So Gideon continues to follow God's instructions. And Gideon reduced the army from 10,000 down to 300 men. Because the battle that followed was designed to give glory to God rather than to men. And so Gideon equipped each of his men with a torch, a pitcher, and a trumpet. And at the middle watch of the night, he surrounded the great host of Midian, described as like locusts for the multitude, and having camels as the sand upon the seashore for multitude. That's in Judges 7 and verse 12. Well, at a given signal... The pitchers were broken, suddenly revealing the lighted torches that had been within them, and the trumpets were blown. And the Midianites awakened, and they saw lights everywhere around them, and they saw, heard the tremendous blast of sound, and they were confused. And they drew their swords, and they began to strike out in every direction. And so what happens is the Midianites wound and kill many of their own number, and the rest flee. With 300 men, God had vanquished an enemy numbering many thousands. Now the other story has to do with David and the numbering of the people. It takes place late in David's life, and, and this is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 2 and 3. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number you the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people, how many soever they be, a hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth the, my lord the king delight in this thing? 
David's triumphs. From that memorable day when he vanquished the giant Goliath, all through his life, all of David's victories had been through the power of God. So does it not seem strange that David in his old age should glory in the number of men in his army? And, and Joab seems to see the danger in this far more clearly than David does. Because it was David that insisted that the census be taken. Nine months and twenty days later, the census reported that Israel had 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And that Judah had 500,000 more. By this point, David realized something. David realized that this was an action of pride. It was not an action of humble dependence upon God that caused him to number the people. So the account of this story of David numbering the people continues in 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. And David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now... I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. God then proceeded to punish David for his lack of trust in him. So again, we have the example of God's desire that his people realize something. That his people realize that their strength and Their power comes not from their own humanity and their own human strength, but it comes from the power of God. All of that said, where is the real strength of America? What would the average American on the street say our strengths and our weaknesses are today? Some might want to describe the strength of our nation in terms of nuclear armaments or our military. They might want to describe our strength in terms of missiles and smart bombs and sophisticated aircraft. Even though over the years until recently our military was decimated by several years of very poor decisions on the part of those in leadership, we do have a powerful military that's been built up over the last few years. In addition, America has tremendous wealth. Now, granted, we've seen that shrink because of so many jobs being lost to overseas nations. And the rising national debt has taken its toll. America has a treasure trove of mineral resources, water power, and timber reserves. America has gold reserves also. 
And yet, it's good for us to remember and to learn from history that every powerful and wealthy nation of past history has sooner or later come upon poverty and defeat. And it's been caused in the vast majority of cases by internal rot within that nation. Well, the power of America also lies in its institutions. Though flawed, especially flawed in our day and time, and we learn more and more about the flaws daily, our form of government is still the finest form of government the world knows. Our educational institutions, though they are flawed, are still another source of America's strength. There are great business and industrial firms that add to the strength of our nation. But the real strength and the real greatness of America is much deeper than those things. On the very deepest level, the strength of America is in her people. As you look back over the years, you find a parade of strong people. And these were strong people that made America strong. It all began when the pilgrims crossed the North Atlantic on the tiny Mayflower. And it continued down through succeeding generations. America was made strong by people who possessed Honesty, integrity, and morals. America was made strong by people who had solid conditions about right and wrong. America was made strong by responsible, dependable people. By people who believed in hard work, clean living, and self-discipline. Those are the qualities of character that built America into a great nation. Sadly today, there are many in this great nation of ours, and their number is increasing, that have completely lost their moral compass. They will do anything, say anything, and trade anything for power. And because of this kind of people who are characters instead of people possessing character, our nation is in trouble. We've used this verse over and over in this study. It's what the wise man Solomon wrote in Proverbs 14, verse 34. Righteousness exalteth a nation, and sin is a reproach to any people. Righteous living, godly living, builds strength in a nation. Sin, wickedness, dishonesty destroys that strength. I think all of us are concerned about the future of our land. We're concerned about the kind of world that our grandchildren are going to inhabit. In the last half century, we have seen a softening of convictions among our people. 
And it seems every day there is some different government scandal that is in the news. In fact, it's reached the point that it's almost a rare occasion that there's only one new scandal per day. And the sad thing is, the kinds of things that are going on, the kinds of scandals that we see, the kinds of moral decay and decadence we see in our government are the kind of things that once upon a time embarrassed people. And now the things that once embarrassed people or made people feel ashamed are considered just the norm. I think one of the most humorous things I see sometimes is some politician being interviewed on television talking about some other politician and he says, he or she says, shame on you, so-and-so. And I think to myself, what do you people even know about shame? Our politicians today are some of the most shameless people that ever walked the face of God's green earth. So many people seem far more concerned about their personal privileges than being concerned about anything worthwhile. Vacation periods, retirement benefits, pleasant working conditions, family leave benefits, all of these things occupy our time. And in many ways, we have become a land of people who are pleasure-mad people. A land of people seeking their own personal enjoyment and their own personal gain. Seeking this to such an extent that it jeopardizes the real heart and strength of America. One of the most, the most that we can do for America is to live genuine Christian lives. Lives of high purpose, lives of humble dedication, and then thereby influence others to do the same. The words of the following poem, written by that famous author, Anonymous, express greatly the need for our nation. God, give us men. The time demands strong minds, great hearts, true faith, and willing hands. Men whom the lust of office does not kill. Men whom the spoils of office cannot buy. Men who possess opinions and a will. Men who have honor, men who will not lie. Men who stand before a demagogue and decline his treacherous flatterings without winking. Tall men, sun-crowned, who live above the, above the fog in public duty and in private thinking. The right kind of people are the greatest strength that any nation can have. And it is my deep belief that goodness or righteous life cannot be permanently taught apart from the religion of Jesus Christ. It is possible for an atheist to be honest and truthful. But no man or woman who does not have a deep faith in God and respect for God can have the life-filling motivation for honesty and integrity that a Christian has. 
If circumstances should change, if pressure should become great enough, if the advantage of another way of life should be appealing enough, there's no reason why the godless atheist should not change. But that man or woman who is honest and clean of life, because of their love of God, they have a motivation that's going to remain constant no matter what comes. Goodness cannot be permanently taught apart from the religion of Jesus Christ. What we are all too aware of, what is all too evident, is that our world is drifting away from religion toward secularism. There are those who use every influence that can be mustered to destroy faith in God. This drift toward secularism is especially prominent and dominant in our large metropolitan areas. And the materialistic influences are becoming greater every year. In our part of America, we're fortunate to be living in what has been referred to for many, many years as the Bible Belt. And yet, if we look around us, we can see the influence of religion as it wanes in our area also. As we've noticed over these past eight weeks, we need to remember that our founding fathers were religious men. The pilgrims came to live on a bleak new continent. And they did this so they could have the freedom of religion. Our coins bear the inscription, In God we trust. And religion has been woven into the fabric of American beginnings. We must stand firm. We must stem the tide. We must stand against these forces and not allow this heritage to be lost to future generations. Tragically, religion has been crowded to the background. It has been excluded in public education. Politicians and courts have made it impossible for the public schools to teach religion in any effective manner. In our colleges, in our universities, we find a genuine hostility toward religion. Whenever religion is mentioned, it's more likely to be mentioned in a negative manner than in a positive manner. Our universities are hotbeds of atheism and agnosticism. When the foundation of our world and our nation seem to become crumbling, what must Christians do? The answer is as it has always been. Those who believe in God and in His eternal principles are to stand out like lighthouses on a darkened coast letting the divine light shine through them to those who are in peril. This is a time when Christian example is a most precious commodity. 
May we let our light shine in such a way that others could see the true beauty and the true appeal of Christian living. And not let our example be marred by the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And we must not let our example be compromised by any of the condescension that has sometimes made Christian people so unappealing in the eyes of those outside of God's family. We need to speak words of tender pleading. We must hope that these words will touch troubled hearts, distraught hearts, and touch them in such a way as to lead others to know the love of God. We also need to spend time in prayer for our nation and its leaders. Dr. Howard Kirshner was a conservative economist. His body of work was the middle part of the 20th century. He was an outspoken critic of the welfare state, organized the Christian Freedom Foundation, and was the editor of its journal, Christian Economics. And here is what Dr. Kirshner wrote. More and more widely, the idea is being accepted that whatever is standard practice is right, that there is no immutable law of God, but only the custom and usage of the times. Truth is said to be determined by consensus, by whatever most of the people are saying and doing. Polls and samplings are accepted as guides to truth and morals. Today, we hear more about trends and tendencies than principles. And the majority determines right and wrong. Somehow, as I read those words, I can't help but feel that those words are all too true. There is something in man that wants to follow the crowd. To do what others are doing, no matter what it is. There's a strong pull to join the multitude in whatever's being done. It's tragic. And it is a major mistake when men and women come to feel that right is determined by majority action. Dr. Kirshner continued in his article, Within the moral realm... Polls and majorities do not determine truth. That lies in the province of God. Though all the people might say otherwise, God's law cannot be amended or repealed. The consensus, indeed, sanctioned the revelers who danced about the golden calf. But the moral law of God carried down from Mount Sinai by Moses declared otherwise. And God's law was right. The consensus was against Daniel, the three Hebrew children, and the prophets. But they were right. A sampling of public opinion condemned Jesus to crucifixion. But truth, nevertheless, hung with him on the cross. As the foundations of our nation and our world seem to be crumbling, Christian people need to pray. We need to involve ourselves in the process. We need to have our voices heard in the halls of Congress. 
We need to have our voices heard in the state house. We need to have our voices heard at every level of the process. And we need to stand firm in the principles of God. Our time is gone. Until we're together again, may the Lord richly bless and keep you is our prayer in Jesus' name.